Well, I just remember William Castle always had a cigar, and he always had a, a, a director's chair with his name on it, something I always wanted as a child. Uh, and he was over the top. You know, I, I always liked Captain Hook and Peter Pan. I liked the Wicked Witch and Snow in Snow White and the Wizard of Oz. So I always liked the evil characters. And, and he was a ham bone, certainly. But he was a movie director. That's the thing I think that very much appealed to me. I certainly, when I was a kid, didn't say I want to be a movie director when I grew up. But I was a puppeteer, and um, I gave puppet shows all the time. And he influenced that part of my career very, very negatively, because I would try to put these these gimmicks in the puppet shows, and they didn't work. And the parents would just look at me like I was insane. It really hurt my career when I would hand out. I would put wax paper over the stage, and then hand out kids these glasses, and said you could see the ghost. You couldn't see anything. It was just kids sitting there, huh, with this <laughs> wax paper over their face watching a puppet show. So he influenced me always from the moment he came out. Um, I followed him heavily, and I was just, but so did millions of kids. I mean, kids love William Castle. He was like the best camp counselor you could ever have. Crazy uncle, um, Gyro Gearloose, this mad inventor that came up with stuff. Abby who? Abby Normal. Broadcasting from the backwoods of Fayette County, Pennsylvania, and promoting better living through bad movies. Clockwork Cardiac Productions presents Abnormal State Theater. There is no way out of here. It will be dark soon. Let us spend a few pleasant hours together. I want you to meet a dear friend. And now, the theater curator and host of these broadcasts, Dr. R. D. Gearhart. Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of Abnormal State Theater, the podcast where we examine the therapeutic value of bizarre and obscure films of past and present as a cure for the common movie. I'm your host, Dr. R.D. Gearhart, and I am recording remotely from a cabin in the middle of the woods up here in the Appalachian Mountains of southwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, my family owns a little bit of land up here, and... I like to, at least once every summer, come up and spend a few days by myself, uh, even if it's just cloistering myself in the cabin itself and watching movies. Um, still, it's a nice retreat from having to be around people so much for the rest of the year. And that being said, you may hear, even with the music I plan on putting in later on, you may hear some noises, uh, the creek flowing by or the animals in the background, bugs. Some of the cars that drive past uh, this road up here, although there aren't too many, this is again fairly remote. Um, every now and then an aircraft will pass over, but in any case, just be aware that you may hear those things as well, and it's perfectly normal for up here. I'd like to apologize profusely for the ludicrous amount of time that has passed since episode 7. Uh, mainly it's been due, once again, to health issues with myself and my family. I'm not going to get too much into that, however. One thing I did want to do, although it is a bit late, is note the passing of a true legend in the genre film podcasting community, Vince Rotolo of the B-Movie Cast. He died suddenly and quite unexpectedly back on April 27th at the age of 65, really far too soon. And quite honestly, whenever I listened to him initially, when I started getting into his podcast, I'd have never guessed that he was that old. For nearly a decade, or maybe even more than a decade, I don't know the exact start date, um, Vince ran his weekly show from his spare bedroom studio in South Carolina and was eventually joined by his wife Mary and his friends Nick Brown from Kentucky and Juan Ortiz from the creepy swamps of Florida 
and explored one forgotten cinematic gem after another. And I'll admit that more than once after listening to an episode about some completely bonkers film that I'd never heard of before, I'd find myself hopping onto Amazon or eBay and scrounging myself up a copy. Shoot, sometimes it would happen while I was listening. Anyway, whenever I heard this news, my heart went out to Mary and to Nick and Juan and all of Vince's friends and family at this time. I still remember the Sunday after it happened, I had uh, been waiting for the B-Movie podcast feed to update on iTunes, and I didn't see anything. Usually by Sunday night at the latest, there'd be something in the feed for me to listen to, but there wasn't at this point, so um, I ended up listening to uh, Monster Kid Radio, uh, another great podcast, highly recommended. Derek Cook does a great job on it. He's probably one of the busiest podcasters in the business, but anyway, it was he who basically broke the news that Vince had passed, and I felt a little heaviness in the pit of my stomach whenever I heard this, because I knew we had really lost a major player in podcasting. It was really heartening to see recently on Facebook that Mary Rotolo made it to the 2016 Monster Bash in Mars, PA, and accepted the coveted Forey Ackerman Award on behalf of Vince. And fittingly enough, Juan was there um, offering his support, too. Um, great people. Great people. And Vince founded a B-movie community that now includes countless other podcasts, too many to list here. And while I never had a chance to meet the man himself, I considered him and his crew to be friends of mine. Really, his show just had a very laid-back, down-to-earth feel, just as though he were talking to every member of his audience as an individual fellow lover of unusual film and television. And Vince never used his show as a place to get malicious about the movies he didn't like, or get overly snarky, or congratulate himself on cleverness for putting down a movie. If he did that, after a while would have probably stopped listening. He was all about positivity. Even if there was a movie that he clearly didn't care for, all that he would say about it most of the time would be that, well, it was pretty wild. And he said that a lot about a lot of movies that he liked, too. Yeah, Vince was really all about positivity, and he set a fine example for the rest of the podcasters out there in the genre film community. One of my other colleagues, very, another very busy man, Duncan McLeish, uh, said that if you get into podcasting just to get a whole bunch of downloads or to make a name for yourself, you're not getting into it for the right reasons. You really need to do it about something that you enjoy and you need to enjoy doing it in and of itself. Otherwise, what's the point? I'd been a listener of the B-Movie cast since 2012. Uh, really a relative latecomer when you consider how long the podcast had been going. And it was one of the shows to inspire me to get into podcasting, albeit on a much less professional level. Um, you know, Vince had, as he would say in every episode, hundreds of miles of wire and duct tape and server farms and NSA listening posts, etc., etc. On the other hand, all that I have really is an iPod, a microphone, a set of headphones, and an opinion. But that's not letting it stop me, and if you want to get into podcasting, it shouldn't stop you either. From the chatter in the B-Movie cast Facebook group, it sounds like after a reasonable amount of time has passed that Mary, Nick, and Juan may try to bring the cast back in some form and I sincerely hope that they can.
Hi, sorry for cutting in, but this is me from several weeks in the future, whenever I finally got around to editing this episode. Just letting you folks know that the B-Movie cast has been resurrected officially. Episode 376 was released on the day of this recording, and it sounds lovely. Um, Mary, Nick, and Juan are doing a great job in keeping the spirit of the old show alive. It's not exactly the same, of course, without Vince, but I tell you what, I'm just glad it is back on the pod waves. Okay, we'll now return you back to my earlier self at the cabin. In Vince's honor, actually, I'm wearing my B-Movie Cast t-shirt while recording this episode. I brought it up to the cabin with me. And it proudly displays an alien from 1957's Invasion of the Saucer Men. Uh, again, a film I highly recommend. Holding a beer and TV dinner and turning his iPod on to listen to the cast. I think that brand is American International Beer. Let me see. Yep, yep it is. Nice little in-joke there. Anyway, this episode of Abnormal State Theater is dedicated, as embarrassingly belated as it may be, to his memory. And actually, Vince never felt the need to use a pseudonym when talking about B-movies, and many of the other podcasters he inspired and which I listen to don't either. So I'm going to drop mine effective now. Um, Whenever I started this show which was a little over a year ago, but I haven't done any kind of anniversary thing just because it's been so intermittent. I don't really feel that I'm entitled to that right. But whenever I started the show, I thought, well, maybe I could sort of create a character as a movie reviewer. But the problem is, once I get to talking, the real me just comes right through. Any pretense of a character drops away. So why should I even try anymore at this point? So... I'm going to go ahead and drop my pseudonym effective now as well. I'm shedding the Dr. R.D. Gearhart mask. My name is Ryan Nicklow. I'm from Connellsville, Pennsylvania, and I love weird movies. Moving on. We'll talk a little bit about what I've been watching lately. Um, up here at the cabin, I brought a whole box of movies with me to watch. And it's funny because actually the last couple nights I've sort of suckered myself into an In Search Of marathon. Just something about Leonard Nimoy and Bad 70s hair that just draws me to it. I don't know. It's, it really, I can remember some of these when they're first run. And oddly enough, that doesn't make me feel old. Anyway... Um, some other things I've been uh, watching. I've gotten into uh, Batman 66, or back into it really, picking up on the second season where I had left off, but now I'm watching them from a brand new Blu-ray box set. Um, recently I learned, much to my dismay, that my DVD box set that I got off of eBay was an Asian bootleg. A very well-packaged Asian bootleg, but a bootleg nonetheless. <laughs> Now, whenever I say bootleg, I'm not talking about the countless fan-made boots that were on the gray market before DC and Warner Brothers and Fox and all the other involved parties got their legal wrangling straightened out two years ago. I'm talking about a counterfeit of the official box set that came out in November of 2014. As I said, I found what I thought was a fairly reasonably priced set on eBay, and it wasn't very long before my dad passed away last year. 
it looked decent enough on my bedroom television, but whenever I started watching it on the big screen in the living room a couple of months ago, I started seeing compression artifacts all over the place. I knew something really wasn't right. This wasn't the quality that I would expect, considering how much this box set had been advertised. So I went online, did a little checking, and learned indeed that what I'd gotten was not the genuine article. It's too late to do anything about that through eBay, but since I had a little extra dinero left over from my tax return, I got the basic Blu-ray box set from Amazon. Now, not the fancy one with a little Batmobile and all the extra gingerbread in the packaging. I don't have room for it. But whenever I popped in the Blu-rays, I could tell the difference immediately. Of course, the Blu-rays are going to be sharper than DVD to begin with, but I mean, this was a crisp image, no artifacting, it was just beautiful. What made me feel really stupid is that I'd already been taken by this Dodge once before. Whenever I thought I'd gotten a bargain on imported Doctor Who box sets, now, this was back whenever you couldn't just walk into a Walmart and pick up a whole season of Doctor Who for 20 bucks. The quality of the transfer was passable, but then I saw some glaring misprints in the packaging. I gotta give credit where it's due. The packaging of the bogus Batman DVD set was right on point. But I learned my lesson. You know, I mean, first of all, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. But also, whether it's a foreign or domestic series, if you find a box set on eBay for a price that's too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. And with that public service announcement out of the way, we'll get into this episode's movie, the 1959 Vincent Price flick, The Tingler, after this brief message. Constipation can be a problem for anyone, even doctors. And when constipation occurs, it's interesting to see just what doctors consider important about a laxative they might use or recommend. Well, a majority of the doctors we heard from had this to say. A laxative should be effective, gentle, close to natural acting. A medicine that can be used with complete confidence. Now, X-Lax has been popular with many doctors and millions of people over the years because chocolated X-Lax is effective. Overnight, it helps you toward your normal regularity. X-Lax is so gentle, so close to natural acting, there's no upset. That's why many doctors and millions of people use X-Lax with complete confidence. X-Lax, the laxative that helps you toward your normal regularity, gently. Overnight. There's a sucker born every minute. That saying's been attributed to P.T. Barnum, one of the greatest showmen in history, and also one of the greatest hucksters. Whether it was actually spoken by him or not, and most scholars say it wasn't, it well reflects his attitude toward his audience, and his famed ability to give his audience a spectacle, legitimate or otherwise. What does this have to do with today's movie? Well, The Tingler was one of several gimmick-driven films made by the P.T. Barnum of the horror genre, William Castle. And these films catapulted him to fame for a brief few years as the number one horror director in America. A little background information on Castle. 
He was born William Schloss Jr. in 1914. Schloss is the German word for castle, so all he had to do to get a distinctive pseudonym was to translate his given last name. By the time he was 11 years old, he'd lost both of his parents. But only two short years later, he knew exactly what he wanted to do with his life, after having seen Bela Lugosi in the stage adaptation of Dracula. I never drink. Why? This is the same adaptation that would be made into a movie in 1931. He's what we would call today a fanboy because he watched the play avidly, catching one performance after another, and he ended up meeting Bela Lugosi. He made a pretty good impression apparently because Lugosi put in a good word for him and by the age of 15 he was working as assistant stage manager for the traveling production of Dracula and he dropped out of high school to take this job. He didn't stop at that whenever he came to aiming high. After he spent his teenage years working both backstage and on stage on Broadway, he convinced, of all people, Orson Welles to lease him the Stony Creek Theater in Connecticut and hired a German actress named Ellen Schwanecke in, forgive me if that's mispronounced, uh, if you've heard any of the other episodes you know that uh, German names and I have a long and turbulent history. But anyway, he hired this actress, Ellen Schwanecki, to star in a production that he had yet to determine. The problem was that the Theater Guild at the time required that German-born actors could only star in plays originally performed in Germany. Castle looked at the situation and proceeded to pull off a caper that sounds like something straight out of Mel Brooks. We've got to protect our phony baloney job, gentlemen. We must do something about this immediately, immediately, immediately. Harumph, 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 harumph. I didn't get a harumph out of that guy. Give the governor harumph. Harumph. He announced that he had hired the actress for a play called Das ist nicht für Kinder, which translates to Not for Children. This play did not exist at the time. Instead, Castle spent the weekend after making that announcement writing the complete play and getting it translated into German. In the meantime, Ellen Schwanecke got a request from Nazi Germany inviting her to perform in Munich. Now, whether she ever sent a response to them is unknown, but Castle composed a telegram turning down the request and released it to the newspapers Again, it's not really known if he actually sent the telegram, but what's important is that it caused the media to call Schwanecki the girl who said no to Hitler. Nein, 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 nein. Castle then secretly vandalized the Stony Creek Theater, painting swastikas on the outside walls and claiming it was the work of Nazis to sympathizers. Um, at this point, I should probably mention that uh, William Castle was Jewish by birth. Anyway, the publicity between these two stunts made sure that Das ist nicht für Kinder was a success. The lesson the castle learned here was pretty clear. With the right gimmick, you could sell anything, even if it was just a piece of hack work that you'd knocked out in less than two days. The next phase of his career began when he was 23 and started working for Columbia Pictures under Harry Cohen. Uh, by 1943, he had become a director of B. 
grade pictures and his first film was called The Chance of a Lifetime. He went on to make a string of successful westerns and action movies and throughout the 40s and 50s he gained a reputation as a director who got things done, bringing his pictures in on time and under budget. But he still wanted more. When he saw the success of a French psychological thriller called Les Diaboliques, he believed that he could duplicate the success in the U.S. and decided to get into the horror business. He bought the rights to a novel called The Marble Forest and commissioned screenwriter Rob White to convert it into a screenplay. Ultimately, the screenplay was called Macabre. He pitched the film to Columbia and was turned down flatly, so in the true what we would call today indie spirit, he said, it's cool, I'll just do it myself and mortgaged his home to raise the $90,000 to produce the film. It was released in 1958 through Allied Artists and featured a gimmick that at the time was considered extremely audacious. Every filmgoer received a certificate for a $1,000 life insurance policy from Lloyd's of London against death by fright during the viewing of the film. However, even Lloyd's of London will not grant coverage for any person with a known condition or for suicide by any member of the audience. To ramp the hype up even more, Castle had hearses parked outside the theaters and nurses stationed in the theater lobbies. Full disclosure here, I have yet to see Macabre myself. It's on my extremely long to watch list, so I can't judge the picture. Critics called the movie dull and claustrophobic, but what did the audiences think? Well, this $90,000 film brought in a box office of, depending on which source you consult, anywhere from $1.2 million to $5 million. Any way you slice that, Macabre made bank. And in case you were wondering, nobody ever collected on that life insurance policy. This emboldened Castle to take things to the next level with House on Haunted Hill in 1959, which was the first of two pictures he would do starring Vincent Price. I'm Vincent Price, and you're invited to my party in the House on Haunted Hill. Hooray, or you'll be late for your own funeral. This one I have seen, and it's not so much a haunted house as it is a very thoroughly booby-trapped house. But all the same, it's a decent watch. The featured gimmick here was called Emerjo. Near the end of the film, on screen, a skeleton would rise from a vat of acid to menace Vincent Price's character's wife. And during the sequence, a plastic skeleton with glowing red eye sockets would be suspended on wires attached to a track over the first few rows of the audience. Initially, the skeleton was made of heavy plastic, but after an incident when the skeleton went off the rails and hit an audience member, it was changed to an inflatable skeleton, which probably also cut down on the cost. Once word spread about these floating skeletons, little kids would try knocking them down with slingshots, candy boxes, probably whatever they had on hand. Now, these kind of gimmicks uh, weren't used in every theater. It were primarily used in bigger theaters. It wouldn't be economical to outfit every single theater it played at with these things. House on Haunted Hill was both a critical and popular hit, and inspired Alfred Hitchcock himself to try his hand at low-budget horror. And as a result, he made the classic Psycho in 1960, 
which then inspired Castle to make a psycho knockoff called Homicidal in 1961. It's interesting how these two sort of fed off one another. His heyday as America's foremost horror director, I'm talking about Castle now again, lasted until 1964, during which he made other gimmick-driven films such as the original 13 Ghosts, Mr. Sardonicus, Zots, and Straightjacket, as well as a remake of The Old Dark House. Now, I hope to get into some of these other Castle films in future episodes, so I'm not going to get into their gimmicks here. Stepping back to 1959, the movie that we're going to look at today, The Tingler, stars Vincent Price as Dr. Warren Chapin, who's a medical examiner who does side research into the nature of fear and its physical effects on the human body. It's his firm belief that the tensions caused by fear, if allowed to build up without proper lease in the form of a scream or other audible uh, acts, creates a physical entity in the human body, uh, a parasite, if you will, so powerful that it can split the spinal column. Ridiculous? Of course, but that was William Castle's stock in trade. When you throw in his unfaithful shrew of a wife, a lab assistant worried about him going too far, a sister-in-law engaged to said lab assistant, a schlubby guy called Ollie who has a deaf-mute wife who can't stand the sight of blood, a silent film theater, and a whopping dose of LSD, let's just say that to use a phrase I'm quite fond of, hijinks ensue. And while critics gave the film mixed reviews, it was another big hit for Castle Films. A little bit on the cast, uh, Vincent Price, of course, needs no introduction. This was during his first true rise to horror stardom, which began with the original House of Wax in 1953, followed by The Mad Magician in 1954, and The Fly and Return of the Fly in 1958 and 59. After his two films with William Castle, he joined forces with Roger Corman and American International Pictures to make a whole bunch of widely successful films based loosely on the works of Edgar Allan Poe. And I'm going to leave the Poe cycle alone here because, again, I hope to visit some of these films in the future. Vincent kept a fairly high profile in films and TV for decades afterward, up to his death in 1993. Sorry if it sounds like I'm just glossing over his career, but I could easily talk for hours and hours about Vincent Price alone, so we'll let this suffice. He's joined in The Tingler by English actress Patricia Cutts, who played Dr. Chapin's wife Isabel, and was known for film and TV roles on both sides of the pond, most notably in North by Northwest, also in 1959. She later on took a role uh, on the leading British soap opera Coronation Street in 1974, but only appeared in two episodes before dying of a drug overdose. Isabel's younger sister Lucy was played by Pamela Lincoln, who just happened to be engaged to former child star Daryl Hickman, who played Dr. Chapin's lab assistant, Dave Morris, who just happened to be engaged to Lucy. So. To recap, both the actors and the characters were engaged at the time. Rounding out the main cast is Philip Coolidge, who had roles in North by Northwest and also 1960's Inherit the Wind, and here he plays the part of Aldi Higgins, and Judith Evelyn, who's likely best known for role as Miss Lonely Hearts in Hitchcock's Rear Window in 1954, and she plays the deaf-mute Martha Higgins. 
Now, you've probably noticed that I've not said a whole lot about the actual gimmick used in the Tingler. There's a reason for that. As I descend to the screening room, I'm going to let William Castle himself explain it in this trailer. obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is the Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that the Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by the Tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from the Tingler? As you can tell from the trailer you just heard, one thing William Castle did not believe in was burying the lead. And when you make movies that are primarily driven by gimmicks, you really can't. He lays out exactly what you can expect to happen if you put down your money for a ticket to the Tingler. 
and as long as he delivers, he knows the audience will come away feeling they got their money's worth. That being said, a decent gimmick combined with the right delivery system can cover a multitude of sins. In this case, the biggest sin is the premise behind the gimmick itself, that the only way to survive an attack by the, by the Tingler is to scream for your life. Fortunately for the movie, the delivery system for this gimmick is Vincent Price, and it couldn't be in better hands. Vincent had the gift of being able to deliver lines that would sound laughable coming out of anyone else's mouth. Let's review our progress so far. What do we know about the Tingler? What do we think we know, and what have we got to find out? First, we know that it exists. The script that Rob White delivered for this film, in the wrong hands, would have been a disaster. But for Vincent Price, it was just another day at the office, playing a medical examiner who may enjoy his job just a little too much. Well, I, I guess he deserved it, killing those two women in cold blood like that. What? Oh, yes, he, he killed these two women and lived right down the street from where I live. Looked for a while there, though, that they couldn't even find a clue, but they did. Hmm. I seldom know who they are or what they did. I suppose because I don't want to know. You now, science is sometimes frighteningly impersonal. In a way, though, I can sympathize. I once worked with a girl who used to be a mortician, and I asked her what drew her to the job. She simply said, the dead don't gripe. When you see Dr. Chapin's home life, you really can't blame him for wanting to stay away from the, ugh, just the unfaithful hag that he married. I mean, well, she wasn't a hag from a physical standpoint, but definitely personality-wise. You know, I know a wonderful psychiatrist with a perfectly divine straitjacket, just your size. Are you forgetting anything? Probably. Probably is the understatement of the year. Now remember this, everything you've got, I paid for. Your laboratory, all that expensive junk, Dave Morris's wages, your car, this house. And remember this, all I have to do to put you and Dave Morris right into the street is to turn the key. He's not going to get that kind of static from the latest stiff he's had to cut up on the job. And this is actually a common theme in Castle's movies, domestic dysfunction, that is. Now, when you think of the term tingler... It typically comes across as kind of benign, almost humorous. But when Vincent Price tries it on for size... Tingle? He can do a great deal more than that. You know, it's odd. I've been experimenting with this force for years. Never had a name for it until now. Now I think I'll call it the Tingler. It comes across with a little more menace, which is exactly what the story needed. And while Dr. Chapin is the de facto protagonist of the movie, he's not above doing some dirty deeds of his own for the purposes of his research, like scaring his wife to the point of fainting by shooting at her with a blank pistol, and then quickly taking x-rays of her spine to document the growth of the tingler in her. You're not hurt, dear. It was just a blank cartridge. But thanks for helping with the experiment. You played your part excellently. I see. Sharing in your husband's work and all that, you know. Kitty? Kitty, 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 kitty. I was going to use this cat, but you made a much better subject. Have you two met? In the same alley, perhaps? In addition, the good doctor has become so used to dealing with the morbid and creepifying 
that he has trouble scaring himself enough to feel the tingler's effects. Kids can scare themselves by lying in the dark and making ghosts out of chairs, but we can't. The only way I can frighten myself is to make it real. Jump out of a window, get run over by a car, go out and drown. So he doses himself with LSD, making this the first movie, to the best of my knowledge anyway, to directly deal with the effects of dropping acid, or in this case shooting up acid, beating out Roger Corman and Jack Nicholson's efforts by nearly a decade. You got a helmet? Oh, oh, I've got a helmet. <laughs> I got a beauty. But there's no psychedelia to be found here. This is just a straight-up bad trip. The room is closing in on me. You've got to make it stop. The walls. The walls. The walls. The walls. I have to wonder what William Castle and Vincent Price did to prepare for this scene. Probably next to nothing. When Roger Corman was gearing up to make The Trip with Peter Fonda, he said in his autobiography that he first dropped acid so he could write from experience. I have trouble seeing Castle or Price doing this. I figure that Vincent was simply told to play it up like the walls were closing in, and that was that. LSD wasn't being used to expand consciousness here. It was just a means to an end. So, it may not be a 100% accurate portrayal of the drug's effects, but it was still the first of its kind. However, this little side trip, pun not in, oh, who am I kidding, pun completely intended, did set something up that left me confused the very first time I watched this film. You see... When Dr. Chapin first visits Ollie's home, uh, which is on the upper floor of a silent movie theater that he runs with his wife, who actually owns the theater, uh, the doctor cuts his hand on a broken saucer from a cup of coffee, and just a few drops of blood are enough to make Ollie's wife stiffen with fear and pass out. You see, she can't scream. I have never seen anyone so terrified or so unable to release her fear tensions. What happened? Well, her husband thinks she faints at the sight of blood, but it isn't a true faint at all. It's much more serious. Her unreleased tensions grow so great that she goes into psychosomatic blackout. What if she didn't? Hey, that's an interesting question. Not long after that, the doctor does his little LSD experiment. And after he recovers, he gets a call from Ollie asking him to check his wife over, as she's still extremely nervous. Now... All that we see him do is give her a shot of a sedative to calm her down and then give Ollie a prescription to get filled at the pharmacy. Now, after the doctor visits Ollie and his wife, gives her the sedative, and makes out the prescription, which he says is for barbiturates to calm her down, we see her wake up and suddenly start seeing what appear to be hallucinations. Um, a masked ghoul rises from a bed and chases her with a knife. A big hairy arm reaches around a doorway and throws a hatchet at her. And finally, she finds herself trapped in the bathroom with a tub filled with vivid red blood in an otherwise black and white movie. And an arm reaches out of the blood toward her. Unable to scream, she dies of fright. 
This scene, by the way, was filmed on color stock with the set painted black and white and actress Judith Evelyn made up to look like she was black and white so that the only visible color in the film is the red blood. Even now, it's a very unsettling effect. Now, after this happens, Ollie brings the body to Dr. Chapin's home, and the doctor seizes upon this opportunity to extract a full-size tingler from the cadaver. Now, before we get into the tingler itself, let's pause for a moment. We know that Dr. Chapin is fully aware of the effects of LSD, having experienced them himself, at least as they're established in the continuity of this movie. He's shown an interest in Martha Higgins due to her inability to relieve her fear tensions due to her lack of vocal cords, and therefore someone especially susceptible to the tingler. We also know that he is just ruthless enough to pretend to murder his own wife to further his research. Is it that great a leap to suspect that Warren Chapin perhaps dosed Martha Higgins with LSD, knowing that the hallucinations would be enough to kill her and furnish him with his very own tingler specimen? That was the assumption I made the first time I watched this movie. But as soon as this notion is planted, it's exposed to be the red herring it is by showing Ollie packing up the masks and weapons and equipment that he used to essentially gaslight his wife to death. Even later on, when Ollie tries to transfer some of the guilt upon Dr. Warren, or Dr. Chapin, excuse me, the doctor swats it down immediately. I'm sorry, no, I did what I did, Doc. You gave me the idea. Ollie, just because poison happens to exist is no excuse to commit murder with it. I was confused as all get out because the movie takes great pains to set up Dr. Chapin as the villain of the story and then does a total 180 and absolves him of guilt. It's the one part of the plot that doesn't sit well with me, and it never has, but it's not enough to break the movie. On the other hand, the entity of the Tingler itself might be enough to cause some people to leave the theater saying, oh, come on. Essentially, it's this big pulsing rubbery centipede with a pair of big mandibles on the front end that can deliver quite a pinch. It had the potential to be horrifying, but late 50s low budget filmmaking just isn't up to the task, especially in scenes where you can clearly see the wires drawing it along. Credit where it's due though, Vincent Price does his darndest to try convincing us that this thing is a menace when it attacks him. contorting himself in a way that kind of reminded me of when Bela Lugosi had to do so on a larger scale with the inert prop octopus in Ed Wood's Bride of the Monster. Although Price does it a lot better. But if you're like me and you're used to B-movie horror shenanigans, it's good for a chuckle or two. And now, finally, for the gimmick proper. The Tingler, having shown its strength by busting out of a metal box that actually appears to open itself up to let it out in an unbelievably horrible effects shot, gets loose in the silent movie theater during a screening of Tollable David. Now, in select theaters where the Tingler was shown, 
William Castle had a select number of seats rigged with little electric de-icing motors for aircraft. These motors would vibrate like a joy buzzer when activated, giving those particular audience members a tingling sensation. A mythology seems to have sprung up around this gimmick that the theater seats were actually wired to deliver electric shocks, and even Castle himself bought into it when he realized what a great story it would make. But the truth of the matter in the scholarly works that I've consulted, the most prominent being Bill Warren's excellent Keep Watching the Skies, dismiss this and indicate that the motors only vibrated the seats. They did not deliver an actual shock. This also makes the most sense. Castle wasn't a dummy. He wouldn't do something to actually endanger the audience. And what would have happened if a little kid or an elderly person with a heart condition was killed by an electric shock? No, Castle wanted to sell tickets, not get stuck with a lawsuit or a manslaughter charge. Anyway, when the tingler gets loose in the theater in the movie, the screen would go black and this announcement would be played over the PA system. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream, scream for your lives. The tingler is loose in this theater and if you don't scream, it may kill you. Scream! Scream! Keep screaming! Scream for your lives! It's here! It's over here! Help! 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 Look out! It's under the seat! Look out! It's under the seat! The tingler has been paralyzed by your screaming. There is no more danger. We will now resume the showing of the movie. And then, as different people felt the vibration from the rig seat, they might scream in reaction. And then there were always a few folks planted in the theater whose job it was solely to scream at this point. I wish I would have been alive at the time this first came out in theaters. The pandemonium must have been glorious. It's this boldness, this audacity on the part of William Castle to make a movie built around such a ridiculous gimmick, and it actually working for the most part, that makes The Tingler a movie I keep coming back to. Of course, this movie does have some educational value for the viewer as well. If you want to get an audience's attention, the best way to go is with random screaming disembodied heads. It's possibly more startling than anything else in the film. I will never get used to seeing the lights dim in a movie implying that an electric chair execution is taking place. Consider this remark from Dr. Chapin on the electric chair method of execution. Try putting an electrode soaked in saline solution on your head and another one strapped to your leg and then slamming 2,000 volts between them. If it hurts, let me know. Now, I haven't had 1,200 volts through me myself, but I have had 800 volts from a defibrillator. And to be quite honest, my brain didn't know what to do with the sensation. The autopsy scenes in this movie are a far cry from CSI. Instead of gowns and masks and high-tech graphics and 
everything being laid out for you. All that we see in the Tangler is a simple apron, almost the sort of thing that I used to wear whenever I washed dishes at the Golden Corral in a past life, and your own imagination. If you tear apart human bodies for a living, shoot up acid, and the thing you're worrying about the most are the walls closing in on you. The walls. The walls. You might want to question the potency of the stuff. There was some great hammy acting in this movie. When you have Vincent Price in the film, you sort of expect it. But quite possibly the best performance was from the actress who said absolutely nothing. You may just have to see it to understand. Judith Evelyn outhand Vincent Price himself, and she did it without reading a single line. But Vincent would get his chance to do the same thing eventually. Nine killed you. Nine shall die. Nine eternities in doom. But that's for another time and another episode. If you'd like to experience The Tingler for yourself, it's available on DVD as a 40th anniversary edition through eBay or Amazon for around 5 to 10 bucks. And I'm pretty sure you can also get it through Amazon streaming. I've heard nothing to date about it coming out on Blu-ray yet, but I could definitely get behind it getting the Criterion or Arrow video treatment. Many lesser films have had that honor already. And of course, I think you can imagine that with as much goodwill as I've shown this movie through this show, is there really any doubt where it would end up? Into the archive it goes. And that's it for episode number eight of Abnormal State Theater. Hopefully I can get on a uh, fairly regular schedule and get another episode out for you fine folks next month. Till then, this is Ryan Nicklow reminding you to watch some abnormal movies because normal is boring. See you next time. Watch out for snakes. You have been listening to a clockwork cardiac production.